Uh, we're returning to verse 2 of Colossians 1, second page of your handout for that session, and the word saints towards the bottom, remembering that saints is enveloped or sandwiched between locality, Colossae, and the Savior, Christ, the in Christ, in Colossae, bookend, or inclusio around these words. All right, now the term saints here is literally holy ones, as some of your Bible margins may read, and is a term which amounts to Paul's Israel of God in Galatians 6.16, namely, the holy ones of God are the Israel of God of the present New Testament era, which means that they are the new Israel. The old Israel has been replaced. It has been replaced by something broader than the old Israel, namely the Catholic expanse expanse or extent of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, not just confined to Israel as a nation or Judaism as a religion or a people. And that understanding of the saints is also borne out by 1 Peter 2, 6, and the reflection on Exodus 19, 6, the holy nation of the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai is the nation of Israel as she's considered the people of God of that former era, but that is no longer true because the people of God of the new era, the present era, the era since Jesus came, are those who are believers from Jew and Gentile alike. Now, in order to support that interpretation, I direct your attention to a little-known observation in Acts chapter 9, verse 13, where Ananias, who was designated by God to lay hands upon Paul after his conversion and blindness on the Damascus Road, makes the following statement, Acts 9.13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, meaning Paul, how much harm he did to, notice the phrase, your saints at Jerusalem. Ananias is using the very same word for saints here that Paul uses for saints in Colossians 1.2 and the New Testament in general uses for that word. Now notice what he is saying. Your saints, your holy ones. The Christians at Jerusalem were called God's saints. They were called his holy ones. Ananias is designating the people who believe in the Lord Jesus as the holy ones of God the holy nation that God presently has before his face. So that the people of God under the former era or the Old Testament era is Israel according to the flesh. The people of God of the New Testament era is not Israel according to the flesh, but the new Israel according to the spirit. 
That is the new Israel which is united or connected to Christ Jesus. It is in Christ. And it is broader than any ethnic boundary, racial particularity, any particular nation, land, or terra firma. In other words, it exceeds all of that. Else, we don't have a gospel which belongs to the world. Paul makes this very clear in this epistle, Colossians 3.11. There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female. I'm citing Galatians 3.28 there. <clears throat> this is a eschatological Israel. This is a new Israel of God. It is not Jewish. Jews are welcome, but it is not Jewish. It does not belong to Palestine. It does not belong to what stands in Jerusalem that is not the Israel of God anymore. Paul is making that very clear in Galatians 6.16. He's calling the Galatians the Israel of God. God's expansive grace is wider than any piece of real estate on this earth. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is wider and broader and includes more than national, racial Jews. It includes people from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. That is the Israel of God of this age. All right, so... This principle... This principle makes the evangelistic mission of the church, the worldwide mission of the church, essential, which is what Paul was about. He could have never thought of Israel after the flesh as having some kind of peculiar place any longer in the history of redemption. That Jews would be grafted in, amen, but not that there's anything special about Palestine, Jerusalem, or any other part of uh, Israel terra firma. Political, nationalistic, geographical, etc. We've moved beyond that. The Gospels moved beyond that. The Apostles have moved beyond that. Otherwise, why did they go out into all the world? Okay. Now, some of you may have in your version of the Bible a phrase after the end of this second verse, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have that addition. It is present in the old King James Version. It is not present in the newer translations. Why? Because it is not in the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. One of the best examples of that is the papyrus number, number 46, P46 as it's known, which dates, according to Philip Comfort, who advocates this position, sometime from the middle of the second century. So about 150 A.D., <clears throat> less than 100 years after the New Testament was completed by the apostolic authors. So <clears throat> that very early copy of the New Testament, which is the most complete early version. It's, it has some holes in it, but nonetheless, this passage is in it. 
And it does not have and the Lord Jesus Christ following God the Father. Therefore, on the basis of that reading, that the earliest manuscripts that we know do not contain it, we remove it from the text, from the received text. All right, now then, if it was not in the earliest version, there were the oldest versions, how did it get into later versions? It was copied in as a result of the use of that phrase when Paul uses it elsewhere in Philippians 1-2. He says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1-2, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and several other places. So in order to make it symmetrical or in order to make it the same as Paul's other particularly prison epistles, some copyist added it in subsequently <coughs> to uh, the, the apostolic version or the inspired version. There's nothing new about this. It's a, <coughs> it brings up this whole <coughs> study of how do we know what's the best text. And so there's a science called textual criticism that works on those questions. <coughs> and that, that the study that's always in a process of being improved, etc., but nonetheless, that's the explanation for why that has been dropped out here. Okay, now the, the words grace and peace, which are part of this salutation. Who can define the word grace for me? Unmerited favor. It's an unmerited favor. Where does it come from? Where does the favor come from? Yes, it is an unmerited favor of God. <clears throat> so unmerited can also be, uh, <clears throat> the synonym for unmerited can also be undeserved, unworthy. <clears throat> Grace does not presume any merit. Grace and merit don't mix. Grace is a free gift. Something that's merited is earned. Consequently, the two are immiscible. <clears throat> All right, so that's the reason the definition of grace that Bob gave us, an unmerited favor of God, goes all the way back to Augustine, the early church father. <clears throat> he is the one that formulated this concept, although it's coming right out of the intention and the meaning of the biblical word, formulated this context, context <coughs> content or this definition as a result of his struggle with the Pelagians who were meritorious heretics of the early 5th century church. All right, so grace is an unmerited favor of God. Here is Paul asking that grace may abound to them. He's wishing them grace. He's wishing them more, not more grace in and of itself, but he's wishing them more of the reality, the vitality, the energy, and the fellowship of the grace of God. That cannot be earned either. That cannot be merited or deserved either. The increase of the vitality or understanding of the grace of God in one's life. Well, what about peace? Peace here is a wish for well-being. The well-being in body and spirit of the Colossian believers. I wish you well. I wish you peace. I wish you peace of soul and peace of wellness of body. Now that wish, of course, can only be completely fulfilled 
in a place where the body and the soul are no longer at war. They're not at war against spiritual powers. They're not at war against physical powers. Place where the body rests in peace, eternal peace, everlasting resurrection peace, and the soul rests in union with the resurrected body in that eternal well-being forevermore. Any questions about uh, those items? All right, now, we go on with the first chapter, looking at the section, verses 3 to 12, from the handout number 3. Beginning with an attempt to determine the structure of this unit, if there be any. Well, there are some hints there on your handout. But let's take a look at verse 3 and then look at verse 12 and let's see what you observe. Paul is a Semitic individual, and Semitic or Jewish paradigm likes to do what? He is giving thanks to God, correct? But a Semite likes to do what? March? Likes to use what? It's a Semitic characteristic. It's a Semitic rhetorical characteristic. Okay? It's all over the Old Testament. Those of you that have been with me through any of the Old Testament books we've talked about, we've seen it over and over and over again. Paul has been raised in that very same Old Testament or Semitic tradition. So where's the duplication here? Verses 3 and 12. Yes, both places, <clears throat> you read the phrase, give thanks to God the Father. Or thanks to the Father, rather. God is not repeated in verse 12. All right, <clears throat> so verses 3 to 12 are bound together by a duplication, <clears throat> a recursive use of the very same phrase. The Greek is exactly the same. And that means that he's done it on purpose. This is an intentional structuring device for this unit. Having written it that way, he's drawing the attention of the reader to that which is in between, that which is folded between verse 3 and verse 12. So let's look once again and see what further recursion or replication or duplication there may be in this unit in this section. Verse 3, once again, compared with verse 9 this time. Praying, we'll leave the always out or leave it aside, but the word praying, which is the participle here, participle is an ing verb, is also the same in verse 9, even though it may be translated pray, without the ing, but the Greek is exactly alike in both places, 
So we should have praying in both instances. We have not ceased praying for you would be a better translation. Even the NASB doesn't do it consistently there. All right, so praying in verse 3 and praying once again in verse 9. And finally, verse 4 and verse 9 have the final uh, duplication in this broader uh, uh, outline of the structure of the larger unit. What do you see there in verse 4 and verse 9, which is also duplicated? Since we heard. Very good. All right. So we have these patterns of uh, duplication. In verse 13, we have the beginning of a different pattern, a new pattern. Do you notice what happens there? And notice verse 15. You notice what happens there. You get the third person personal pronoun. He, though it would better be translated as the Greek has, the Greek has a relative pronoun here, who. So verse 13 literally would read, who rescued us. And verse 15 would once again, with the relative pronoun, who is the image of the invisible God. So uh, verses 13 and 15 have another type of structure, which distinguishes it from the structure of verses 3 to 12. That proves to us that Paul has finished what he was doing in verses 3 to 12. We're not, we haven't explained what he's doing yet. But he's finished it in verse 12, and he goes on to something else he wants to do with verses 13 and 15 when he ties together the duplicate relative pronouns referring to Jesus himself. Who, who, referring to our Savior. All right, so we set off verses 13 to 15 at this point from verses 3 to 12, and we once again look at verses 3 to 12 in terms of internal duplicates. Now, stay with me because there's a method to my madness here. I'll attempt to explain why the apostle is doing this, but now we want to look again at duplicates within verses 3 to 12. Now, I've already listed a couple of them there, which we've already noted when we looked at the major structure. Give thanks to the Father in verse 3 and 12, which is the outer bracket, the outer bookend, the inclusio feature of this uh, section and praying for you in verse 3 and 9. Now, let's take a look at some of the other uh, comparisons. We could actually list the comparison, which is up above, in verses 4 and 9. We heard of something in verse 4. We heard of something in verse 9. So there's your next duplicate. Now, verse 4 also has a word which reappears in verse 12. Can you pick it out? Verse 4 has a word which reappears in verse 12. 
the saints. Yes, we had it in verse 2 as well, but here he uses it again. He uses it twice over again. So verse 4, saints in 12 is duplicated. Verse 6 and verse 10 have a phrase, two words that are duplicated. Can you pick them out? They're right next to one another. Bearing fruit, verse 6 and verse 10. Same phrase. In each case, the apostle is using exactly the same vocabulary. So we're noticing something here, that within this unit, 3 to 12, he's duplicating even more. And we're not done. Verse 6 and verse 10 also include another word following bearing fruit. Increasing, very good. So increasing is duplicated in 6 and 10. Verse 6 and 9 has a phrase which is duplicated, 6 and 9. Since, since the day in six and nine. All right, now we're almost at the end. <clears throat> the last two, six, <clears throat> which uses the word understand in the New American Standard or in the margin come to know. And then in verse 9 and 10, the word knowledge, which is related to the very same Greek root. So come to know or understand and knowledge are also duplicated in these, uh, in, in these columns. And the last one is in verse 8 and 9. What do you see in 8 and 9, which is very much alike? Spirit, in verse 8, capitalized in the New American Standard, properly so, in my opinion. What do you see in verse 9? Spiritual. Very good. There's the same Greek cousins or roots. The one is the noun, the other is the adjective. Now, spirit and spiritual, then, are related terms and here, in the spirit, I'm defending the New American Standard, capitalizing spirit, in the spirit is a reflection of the Trinitarian character 
of the Holy Spirit because it's like in Christ, which is a reflection of his Trinitarian relationship, which we'll comment on a little bit later. <clears throat> so I'm agreeing with the New American Standard, putting a capital S on spirit there in verse 8. It is the Holy Spirit that he's talking about there, <clears throat> which gives rise to the spiritual fruit or the spiritual relationship in verse 9. All right, now, we've taken a good bit of time to uh, work out these parallels. We've noticed that Paul places these parallels in symmetrical relation. This is not accidental, once again. It indicates that these two columns are two units. They are two smaller rhetorical units of the Apostles' letter. What are the limits of the two units? You'll notice that you go from verse 3 to 8 on the one column, and you go from verses 9 to 12 on the other column. So, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, is one unit of the Apostles' thanksgiving. Verses 9 to 12 is a second unit of the Apostles' thanksgiving. Okay, this is an extended thanksgiving expression. Begins and ends in verse 3 and 12 with the Greek word eucharisto or to give thanks. All right, now, why? Why does he do this? When you look at what you've written in those columns, if you've written down the parallels, you look at the column, this is not just a few occasional duplications. This is a series of them. He uses words in the first part of this, verses 3 to 8, that he once again uses exactly the same way in the second part of this. What's he doing? Making games for Denison to play in Bible studies, huh? No. No, this is brilliant stuff. This is brilliant, remarkable stuff. Look what he's done. In verses 3 to 8, he has commended the Colossian Christians for what they have obtained, for what they have possessed by grace through Jesus Christ, being en Christo, being in Christ. But then in verses 9 to 12, he builds upon that by duplicating the vocabulary. Why? Because he wants them to abound in what they've received. He wants them to increase and grow in what they've received. I commend you for what you have in Christ Jesus, verses 3 to 8. I want you to grow in that which you have in Christ Jesus, verses 9 to 12. Because the story of the Apostle Paul is that he had received what they had received. Everything in verses 3 to 8 is a description of the Apostle's own spiritual biography. And in verses 9 to 12, he is abounding. He is growing. So here's the Apostle being a mirror reflection, though he never saw them face to face. Here's the Apostle being a mirror reflection of what it is to receive and possess Christ, to be in Christ, and then to grow, to mature, to increase, to grow up 
into Christ even more and more. I am doing so because I have been possessed by him as well. And I am a mirror for you as I write this epistle. I want you to receive what I have received. I want you to identify with what I have identified with. And I commend you, give thanks for you, and I want you to grow in grace and peace as I am growing as well. As I say, the remarkable character of the apostle, the group of people he had never seen face to face, never, and yet, out of his great love for Christ and his great love for this congregation, which he had never seen, he becomes the mirror of reflection of the biography and the narrative of what it means to be in Christ. Identified and united to Christ Jesus. You Colossian believers are in Christ Jesus, as I am. And you Colossian believers, I encourage to abound and to grow and to mature in that relation, as I am. This is the vitality of the Christian experience. This is the life-giving power of that Christian experience and its fellowship even with those whom you have not seen face to face. All right, so we go back to verse 3 and the epistolary element. Now, we've had the occasion to comment upon the epistolary elements in Paul's letters. Subscription, adscription, salutation, commented last week on the six elements of those uh, introductions to his letters, prescripts, if you will. Subscription meaning the author who undertakes the letter, Paul always introduces himself in his epistles. Adscription, that is the addressees, those to whom the letter is written, in this case to the Colossians, the salutation or the greeting We called it the benediction last time, grace and peace be unto you. Now in verse 3, the thanksgiving element. We give thanks to God. Paul always does this. He has this standard way of beginning his letters, introducing himself, those to whom he addresses it, a salutation or greeting, and then a giving of thanks And as you can see, this thanksgiving is extensive. It goes all the way from verse 3 to verse 12, as we've indicated, even bracketed by that phrase, giving thanks. There's only one epistle that Paul does not provide a thanksgiving, and that's his epistle to Titus. Why he did not do that for Titus is a mystery. Or the exception proves the rule. All right, now we want to pause for a moment to uh, think about this phrase, God the Father. 
The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 3 makes Jesus Christ what or whom? Son. The Son of the Father. And you'll notice in verse 13 that that is exactly what Paul does. All right, so Father here implies Son there. Actually, Father here implies Son anyway. You can't be called Father unless there is a Son. True? Yes, true. God the Father can't be called God the Father unless there is a Son of God. Otherwise, the word Father means nothing. Meaningless. Shouldn't even be used. Okay? So, first of all, even to say Father means Son, and Paul makes that explicit. The rest of the New Testament does as well. Jesus, the Son of God. All right, now, notice the adjective in verse 13. The adjective attached to son. What is that adjective? Beloved. It means what? What does beloved mean? To be loved. It means he's the object of love, correct? Whose love? The father's love. The son is called beloved because he's the object of the Father's love. So, what do we have? We have one loving. Who's the one loving? And who's the one loved? We have a loving Father and a beloved Son. Now, we've already noted the distinction of the name. There's a Father and there's a Son. That's a distinction of name. And we have a distinction of loving relationship. That is, we have a loving father and a beloved or object of the father's loved son. Jonathan Edwards writes a remarkable book observing this from the epistle of John where the apostle says God is love. And what does Edwards point out? To say that God is love is to require that there be an object of God's love. For a God who is singular and solitary cannot love. There is no object to receive it. There is nothing to be loved. It would be love of self, which would be ultimate narcissism. To say that God is love, Edwards points out, is to say that God has an object of his love. And that object of his love is, as the Apostle Paul says here, the beloved son. So to say God is love means that there are at least two uh, individuals, two uh, names within the Godhead. All right, so let's trace that a little further. The one loving, back to Colossians 1.3, the one loving is called what in this verse? 
Yes. And what's he called? What's the father called in this verse? He's called God. The one loving is called God. Now, is the one loved called God? Romans 9, 5. Let's stay with the Apostle Paul. Romans 9, 5. From whom is Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. What's the antecedent of the relative Pronoun who, the antecedent is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. There is Christ called by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 5, God. What about John 1, 1? What's John 1, 1? Okay. And the Word was God. So John the Apostle says the same thing that Paul the Apostle says. That the Word, who is of course the Son of God, is God. We have two passages, not all, these are not the only passages, but we have two passages which state this. Well, what about Colossians? Maybe Paul forgot himself. Maybe in Romans he thought, thought one thing, in Colossians he thought something else. Let's take a look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Colossians 2, verse 9. What does that tell you about Jesus? Art? He is God. The fullness of deity bides in him. All right, so... Deity here is godness. These two are distinct in name, father and son, as well as distinct in relation. Father loving the son, son beloved of the father. These two are nonetheless equally called God in scripture. Father is God, the son is God. The distinction in name, the distinction in relation, does not cancel or contradict the sameness of being God. God the Father is Father in name and relation, but at the same time, He is God. God the Son is Son in name and relation, but at the same time, He is God. Thus, godness, or divine being, or divine substance, or divine essence, belongs equally to the Father and the Son. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, though we're not specifically focusing on him in this case. They are the same in divine being, divine substance, divine essence, 
godness. They are distinct in relation or person. Equal in substance, same in being, distinct in person, distinct in relation. So the Father is God, and the Son is God, but the Father is distinct in relation, and the Son is distinct in relation. One in being or essence, one in substance or godness, but three in relation or person or name. Not separated or divided in being. Not separated or divided in essence. Not separated or divided in godness, but distinct in relation, distinct in person, distinct in name, without being divided or separate in essence or Godhead. Distinct, but not separate. Thank you, Tertullian of old. Distinct, but not separate. Thank you for that North African Carthaginian church father. That's his phrase. Phrase that the church has embraced for centuries. Distinct, but not separate, as you see it in the nature of the case. Even from the vocabulary that is used. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It demands this kind of explanation for that reality. One in oneness, divine being. Three in person, distinct names and relations. One in three, three in one. God, one, one God in three persons, three persons in one God, so that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but these are not three gods, but one God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The most superb summary expression of this magnificent scriptural doctrine, its doctrine of the magnificent Trinity, is the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed, so named in honor of that great Egyptian church father, Athanasius of Alexandria, who defended this doctrine of the Trinity after the Nicene Council of 325 A.D. The Nicene Council, which gave the church the Nicene Creed. Now, the Athanasian Creed was embraced by our Reformed fathers and mothers, as is evident in my four-volume set of the Reformed Confessions from the 16th and 17th century you will find it even printed in full in the Ratzian Confession of Faith, a Swiss Reformed Confession from 1552, and you have that in, attached to your handout so that you can read the entire thing across uh, two pages. I commend the Athanasian Creed to your understanding for the doctrine of the Trinity, for as I said, it is, in my opinion, the most marvelous and precise statement 
of this doctrine that the church has ever formulated and accepted, which does not mean that it hasn't been <coughs> supplemented or expanded in other cases. Even our Reformed confessions do that wonderfully. But nonetheless, <coughs> the early church had to defend this doctrine, had to shed their own blood for this doctrine. Athanasius nearly was killed in order to uh, protect this doctrine. And that creed summarizes that struggle. That creed summarizes what the Catholic small c, the universal church of Christians at that time, agreed upon against the heretics like the ancient Jehovah's Witnesses and other uh, modalists like the United Pentecostal today. They haven't disappeared these ancient heretics are still around. The Athanasian Creed will help you. And if in reading it, and I hope you will read it, it's your assignment for next week, there'll be a quiz. I hope you read it, and if you read it and don't understand it, then you're under obligation to come to me and talk to me about it, because I'm the one that put it on you. Actually, the triune God puts it on you. He lays it on your heart. He wants you to love this statement of what's revealed about him in Scripture as pulled together in these two pages of, of explanation. So, feed your soul with the Athanasian Creed. Meditate in your heart upon what this is, because it's drawing you up into the mystery of the Trinity in such a way that you can grasp it. I hope I've made that a little more graspable for you, even as we've outlined this as a result of seeing the terms here in Colossians 1.3, God the Father and God the Son. Yes, you can grasp the doctrine of the Trinity in part. Yes, you can understand it in measure, because the words and the concepts are in the Scriptures. And that's what the Athanasian Creed does. It takes the Scripture words and concepts and it puts them into a, a, a nice outline of what the Trinity means and what it does not mean. Randy, you've been very patient. Thank you. In Genesis 1, when the term for God is used, when it uses the term we, is that term distinguishable in the Hebrew grammar between singular and plural? It's called a plural of majesty in the Hebrew grammar. And there is an argument over whether it implies more than one person. <clears throat> I don't think I need to prove that because the Old Testament has God speaking to his alter ego, shall we say, particularly his messianic alter ego. So that there are, there, there are intimations in the Old Testament of an inter-Trinitarian council, that is a fellowship within the Godhead. <clears throat> But even if it's not provable from the Old Testament, the New Testament seals the deal, so to speak. And as Edwards points out, you can't talk about the love of God in isolation from him loving his son. How does the grammar work, though? It's, yeah, it's, it's in the plural form of the word Elohim. So Elohim is the word for God, the general word for God as creator in the Old Testament. And, as, and when it appears in Genesis 1, let us make man in our own image, it's called a plural of majesty, meaning 
that there is a greater number of individuals or uh, persons involved in that uh, in that council. He must suppose that Yahweh would be Yes. Yeah, Yahweh is singular, yes. That, that's the general grammatical discussion. Any, any other questions here as we've kind of outlined the doctrine of the Trinity as a result of the vocabulary here? Ling, you, at, you got a question back there? Here in Colossians 1, you're referring to. Thank you. It's a good observation. Uh, I can't say yes and I can't say no. Uh, it's not something that I've thought uh, seriously about. There is no question about from verse 15 to verse 20, 21 of this epistle that he is focusing upon, uh, shall we say, new creation imagery. Uh, is he preparing the way? It wouldn't be unlike him, but uh, I'd not thought about it. So thanks for the observation. Anything else, particularly on the Trinity? Are you okay? You were able to follow that? I hope. Give me some signals out there. Yeah. You okay, Arnie? Yeah, okay. Okay, all right. The doctrine of the Trinity can pretty, pretty, be pretty heavy going. I try to make it as simple as possible here with a very basic outline. But you understand that it's implicit in the language. You can't say Father and Son and Holy Spirit without you talking about distinct relations. Okay. Well, the Athanasian Creed, for your edification, take a break for your relaxation. All right, now over on the second page of the outline for today. In that third verse, the phrase praying always and the implication of it. Does it mean that Paul is always praying and he's never doing anything else? He's not even writing. Well, obviously, that's an absurdity. <clears throat> Verse 9 helps us understand the sense of what he means. <clears throat> You'll notice the, exp- the uh, vocabulary there. We have not ceased praying. <clears throat> it's really not an infinitive to pray. In the Greek, it's a, it's a participle. <clears throat> Multitasking. Multitasking. Uh, No, not even that so much. Uh, The idea is that when he prays, he always prays for the Colossian Christians. That's the sense of always praying, Uh, not meaning that he's never doing anything else except praying like a Carmelite nun or something like that, Uh, which, which of course, would be absurd, as it is absurd even for the order of the Carmelites. But uh, at any rate... That's that's the intention of it. 
verse 4, he mentions that he heard of their faith. And so we raise the question, since he had never seen them face to face, chapter 2, verse 1, how had he heard? From Timothy? Probably someone closer than that. We can't rule Timothy out. Epaphras, who is mentioned where? Verse 7, yes. Also mentioned once again in verse 12 of chapter 4. Well, how has he heard it from Epaphras? Well, let's take a look at verse 12 of chapter 4. How has he come to hear it from Epaphras? He is with him. He's the bond slave of Christ, even as Paul calls himself bond slave of Christ in other contexts. So, he is in prison with Paul, and he has told Paul about the faith of the Colossians. All right, so we know Epaphras, for one, for sure. I'm not going to rule out Timothy, but there's somebody else that's closer. Onesimus, very good. Onesimus is mentioned in verse 9 of chapter 4. How had Onesimus gotten to know Paul? Also in prison? Where had he come from? Colossae, right? And where else do we know something about him? The epistle to Philemon, correct. We actually have two Colossian letters, and Onesimus is heavily involved in that uh, narrative, <clears throat> which underscores my goal of creating a narrative paradigm or narrative fabric to this epistle, the epistle to the Colossians, because we already have a parallel narrative which involved Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. All right, now he mentions the saints here, all saints, Let's think about all the saints in the locality to which Paul is writing, what locales are mentioned in this letter. Obviously, verse 2, what locality is mentioned in verse 2? Colossae, all right, so that's one locality. Any other localities mentioned in this epistle? Laodicea, where, Marge? Where, Marge? Yes. Where is it mentioned? <laughs> it's in verse 1 of the second chapter. In fact, it's the very first part of the second chapter. It's also mentioned in chapter 4. You'll notice verses 13, 15, and 16. Laodicea is also mentioned again. Even a church in the home of a person living in Laodicea. So we have another house church in this region. 
a house church in Laodicea as we had Philemon's house church, the church in which the Colossians undoubtedly worshipped. And we have one more location mentioned in this epistle. It's in verse 13 of chapter 4. We've actually noted it before when we had the map of the region, and it's the city of Hierapolis. All right, so all the saints in this locality, what do they have in common? Well, they're all part of that very fertile Lycus Valley, that river valley that flowed through that region and of the cities of Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae were part of that region. So I think one can <clears throat> reflect on all the saints in that region in those cities where there are Christian congregations. We know more about that Christian congregation in Laodicea because of Revelation, Book of Revelation and the seven churches. <clears throat> but Hierapolis we know nothing more about except to mention here but it goes to show that the church had expanded. It had taken root in this region, and all the saints in those churches, in this locality, in this region, are commended to God by the apostle. All right, he has heard of their faith. All right, now faith here is multifaceted. We usually think of faith as belief on, confidence in, and that is accurate, but it doesn't exhaust the uh, multiform character of faith. So here, what does Paul mean by faith? Well, he obviously means what we mean when we say believing on Christ, the object of faith, that which we are directing our faith towards. Christ Jesus is the object of our faith and the object of our salvation. He is the objective person who saves. And this is the reason that the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth is absolutely crucial to the Christian faith. If he never lived, as many non-believers and atheists believe and still promote, then, of course, this is all a crock and it's worthless. But his historicity... His thatness, his historical existence is essential to him being the object of our trust and salvation. We don't have faith in will-o'-the-wisp. Well, most rational creatures don't. We don't have faith in ghosts, or at least most rational creatures don't. So, at any rate, a real historical object as the, the terminus or the place at which our faith lands and rests and that kind of faith is demonstrated in the position of the Apostle John at the Last Supper. What's the Apostle John doing at the Last Supper? He is leaning on Christ's bosom. Correct. He is leaning on Christ's breast. That Jesus is the object of my rest. He's the object of my faith. Your faith, the soul of your faith, the soul of the head of the soul of your faith leans on Jesus' breast. That is a picture of what faith in terms of its objective aspect is. Grasp that. Now, it's true that this object upon which your head rests is perfectly righteous 
and you need righteousness because you're perfectly unrighteous, and you need that righteousness to cover your unrighteousness. So you're leaning on Jesus by faith for righteousness or justification, as the Reformers say. Not by your works, not by your merits, not by your <coughs> confessions, not by your penances, but you're leaning upon Jesus. You're resting upon Jesus alone. You're not resting upon your works and you're holding on to your good deeds over here while you've got your head on Jesus. No, 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 no. Your good deeds are filthy rubbish. Your head is leaning completely on Jesus, solely on Jesus, only on Jesus, and Jesus alone. That's the Bible. That's the Protestant Reformation. That's what historic evangelical orthodoxy promotes. All right, so as the object of faith, then it's the person of Christ objectively understood. But that's not the only relational aspect of faith. It's precious. It's rich. It's sweet. I don't want to diminish any of that. But faith as mystical is another aspect of faith, which I think is in the background of the apostles thinking here because we've already talked a little bit about that in our last session. Faith as mystical what? Fill in the blank. Union. Mystical union. Here, faith is joined to Christ. United to Christ. It is in Christ as a husband and wife are in one another by marital union. It is this kind of intimacy in its mystical relationship. The vitality and richness of that is expressed in faith as union. What does it mean to be en Christo? If Paul's talking, I've got a whole list of those, in Christ, into Christ, with Christ, etc. That language, what does it mean? It means to be united, joined to the life that he has. Joined to the righteousness that he has. Joined to the wonderful grace and love that he has. This is a union motif, not just an objective dimension, which is sweet as it is, but this is an actual step beyond that. You're united to Christ spiritually, mystically. And there's a richness that the apostle promotes when he talks about the faith that the Colossians had, because he will expand upon this as he moves through this letter, how they have this richness of being participants in Christ Jesus himself. Now, that participation does not blur the creator-creature distinction. Don't get any misunderstandings about that. You're not going to be, you're not going to be swallowed up into Jesus. The distinction will remain. But you're swallowed up into his life. You're swallowed up into his benefits. You're swallowed up into his righteousness. That kind of union comes from him, you being joined to him, and he communicates all of those graces to you in that union. Now here is where the apostle's biography is absolutely crucial. He uses this in Christ mystical union language over and over and over again in his letters. Why is he so uh, consistent? Why is he so... Uh, full of it. Well, because he's full of Christ, for one thing. But, you see, this is what happened to him. On the Damascus Road, he was joined to Christ. 
Christ took him into union with himself. He took him into mystical union. Yes, the object, who are you, Lord? Yes, that was there. But nonetheless, Paul also understood and began to experience what it meant to be united to the life of this risen Christ who had appeared to him on that road. Everything's different. Nothing's the same anymore. Even his name has changed. This sweet union. And Paul is underscoring this in faith relationship to those in Colossae, verse 2, who are in Christ. In Christ. All right, now, this faith is not without fruit. Okay, it works by love. <clears throat> and he commends that in this fourth verse. <clears throat> in love, by love, for the saints is a characteristic of the Christian faith. <clears throat> in this region, where all these saints are in Christ, they're also in the love of Christ for one another. That is a characteristic of the Christian faith and the Christian life. That love of Christ Jesus, which is also found in those who love Christ Jesus. And that brings a mutual affection and a bond of, li- of love <clears throat> between those who share that reality, share that gift, share that uh, personal attachment to the loving Savior. Now, I made a note there at the bottom that Philemon, verse 5, has this very same vocabulary. And I return to a comment I made before. I put a question mark before the narrative vector, namely that the love of the saints is at work in Philemon's love for Onesimus. There's a concrete case in the biographical life of this church in which that love was expressed. Paul's appealing for it. I don't think there's any reason to think that Philemon did not demonstrate it under the appeal of the apostle in that epistle to Philemon. So there's a concrete example of how Paul understood this love to the saints expressing itself in this congregation. All right, that brings us to verse 5. What is this hope in that verse? What is your hope? Go ahead, Bob. Salvation. That's not what the verse says. What is your hope in this verse? Heaven, yes, your hope of heaven. That is salvation. I'm not denying that. But I I, I want the eschatological phrase. <laughs> you know how to keep me happy. Just keep using the eschatological language. But it's right there in the text, okay? Heaven is an eschatological dimension. It's an eternal dimension. It's an everlasting dimension. It's a final and absolute dimension. All right. But notice verse 27 of this first chapter. What does he do there? Here in verse 5, it's the place. It's the eschatological arena. What does he do in verse 27? Commits himself entirely to it by working at it. I'm in the wrong 27. It's in a... It's a person. So... so.
Oh, well, bring your glasses. We, we, we won't frown at you if you have your bifocals on. Okay, now, notice he, he's done in 27 something more than he did in verse 5. In other words, the expansive character of this hope. It's not just heaven, the eschatological arena. It's the person of Christ himself. Yes. 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 So it's the person of Christ. And where is the person of Christ? He's in you and? And? Heaven. He's in heaven. So, you see, he's directing you not only to the place, but to the person who's the center of the place and the person in whom your life is centered. Semi-eschatologically. Semi-eschatologically. Because you have that hope now and not yet. You now have that hope because of the arena and you belong to it, spiritually speaking, but you don't, you are not yet there perfectly or consummately. You're not yet there face to face before the Lord Jesus. So that hope is Christ in you even now, spiritually. It will be fulfilled consummately and finally and perfect, perfectly. So here we are in this Pauline uh, uh, interim. In this, heaven is in you. You have taken possession of heaven because you've been seated in the heavenly places. You belong to that arena. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. You know that hymn. Okay? There's a great deal of truth in it. Okay? But here, notice it's the person of the arena. He will not cut off. Christ in you from the arena which is heavenly or eschatological. You can't divorce them. You can't separate them. If you're in Christ, you're in the kingdom of heaven. If you're in Christ, you're in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And how secure is that? How assured are you of that reality? It's as secure, as verse 5 says, that it's laid up for you. It's kept safe. It's already prepared. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says. This is already prepared. Heaven is already prepared for those who are in Christ. And you are already there, mystically, spiritually speaking. It's been laid up for you. Oh, but God will cancel it. Oh, I can lose it. Not if you're in Christ. It'd be like saying that Christ would lose you. He's not going to let you go. If he has redeemed your life, if he has given you his grace, if he has drawn you into that union, he's, he's not going to divorce you if he's married you unto himself. He's not going to do that. He's promised he won't. Do you believe his promise? Don't be discouraged when you go through the ups and downs of your spiritual existence. Keep your eye on Jesus. Don't look at yourself. You look at yourself, it's only despair. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Come unto me, he said. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth. He's the one, not you. John isn't looking at himself as he's leaning on Jesus' breast. He's leaning on Jesus. 
You get my point. All the troubles that come with the question of assurance of salvation are troubles that come because people are taking their eyes off of Jesus. Yes, if we do this spiritual inventory, we realize how miserable we are. Paul can call himself the chief of sinners. He's not naive, nor are we. The answer to that is not more self-introspection. The answer to that is not more wallowing in our sinful unworthiness. The answer is Christ. That's what he came to do. He came to know, to let you know that you know. That's what 1 John is all about. To know that you know by keeping your eyes on the Lord Jesus himself. And everything else will follow out. It will fall in order. Looking steadfastly unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. All right. That semi-eschatological element I've already described, the present and future aspect of hope, received through the gospel according to that verse. Which brings us back to the Son of God in verse 13, because he, of course, is the center of that gospel. The Colossians had received the Son of God through the gospel that Epaphras had preached or taught or shared with them. That's how people come to faith, by the gospel being preached or taught or shared with them. It's still the way the Holy Spirit works. It's still the way we pray that the gospel will reap the fruit of this present age. But notice what he also does in that verse. He makes the gospel in a positive for the word truth. He puts it in apposition. You heard the truth, which is found in the gospel. Why does he mention truth here? Because this congregation is bothered by falsehood. And this is the first hint of the apostle addressing that issue. The truth is in the gospel. It is not in something else. What is this church being bothered with? Well, that's an interesting question. Is it other traditions? Is it Jewish insinuation? Is it a return to a kind of Christian Judaism? No. Well, it could be because there were Jews in this congregation. What is it that is challenging this congregation with the truth that he reminds them they found it in the gospel? They didn't find it in Jewish traditions. They didn't find it in Greek philosophy. They didn't find it in anything outside of the gospel, anything outside of Christ. So we have a challenge in trying to understand what the apostle is warning them about. And that challenge is before us till we get to the heart and meat of the second chapter. But here's the first allusion. Here's the first hint that there is trouble in Colossae. Hmm. What's that mean? See, these are issues that come to us with the vocabulary or the language 
of that second chapter. And so we, we know that there's something out there. What it is, we will struggle with when we get to the second chapter itself. But here, this congregation looks in terms of Paul's thanksgiving, in terms of his benediction, in terms of what we've seen so far. This congregation looks like a congregation we've never seen. We don't know anything about a congregation like this. Looks like it's almost perfect. No. There's a problem there. And that problem, that problem is dividing the congregation. It's alienating some from this uh, genuine fellowship in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus. What it is remains to be seen, remains to be discussed. So we'll leave it there, keeping you in suspense until we get to chapter two. Now, we'll have other occasions here in the chapter, first chapter to comment on the issue. But I want to alert you to the fact that here, the truth of the gospel is at stake in Colossae. And Paul's alerting them to the fact, I'm going to talk to you about that in detail when we get to it. Any questions? More harbingers, isn't there? More? How do you say that word? Harbinger? Oh, <laughs> well, uh, you're welcome to submit your uh, a nomination well, for what the... For everybody to think about before it comes. Sure. I, I encourage thinking, as you can see. I want you to think about the text. I want you to think about the letter. Do you have anything more to say? Are you saying that all the things that they mention can be is based on some underlying um, heresy or problem? Yes, I think I think there is one issue. Okay, what is that one issue? Okay, <clears throat> here is the first suggestion that there is an issue. Okay, he doesn't say anything about whether it's multiple or whether it's singular. I think when we get to chapter 2, it ends up being singular. So so I'll I'll, I'll give you that much of a hint. You got me curious then. Well, good. (laughs) All right, let's close in prayer. We do rejoice, Lord, and give thanks. For the gospel of Christ, for the son of your love, who is equal to you in godness, distinct from you in person, and our justifier and redeemer. We thank you that we can call you father through Christ by the power of the spirit. And we bless you for the love that's been spread abroad in our hearts, even for one another in Christ Jesus, that you would take us by grace through faith into this marvelous union with him, joining us unto him in a way which can never be separated because he is stronger than all the forces of darkness which would strip us away from your love and being. So refresh us as we reflect upon these treasures, the wonders of the gospel of grace, and particularly the magnificence of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how majestic, glorious, and loving you have been to sinners such as we are 
And we thank you in Jesus' name.